We've seen a quite touching outpouring the past 36 hours for one of our colleagues, Michael Heaton, who died on Sunday, touched a lot of lives in the three decades he was writing a column called The Minister of Culture and the accounts people are putting online of their encounters with him are moving. So R.I.P. Michael Heaton. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Atassi, and Laura Johnston. And we have something pretty magnificent to talk about today, and I'm going straight for it. We started a series called Cleveland's Promise on Monday, the result of two reporters being embedded in a school for a year, Cleveland School Classroom. Layla, you oversee this project, which will now go on for quite some time. What's it all about, and what was the first installment? Well, the, the goal of Cleveland's Promise is, is really to illustrate the enormous challenges of educating kids growing up under the strain of, of poverty and, and how the Cleveland Metropolitan School District rises to that challenge. In, in some ways, this is sort of the next iteration of A Greater Cleveland, which was the multi-year series we did following the lives of kids growing up in some of Cleveland's poorest neighborhoods. And we told those stories through a series of short, present tense vignettes that were designed to make the reader feel as though they are right there in the moment. And we really wanted to cultivate that same feeling with this series because this is education coverage like we've never done it before. Typically, the education beat is about covering policy and, and school board meetings and you know state report cards, which incidentally we'll talk about later in this podcast. <laughs> and you know, occasionally you'll get the one-off feature about an interesting program that the school schools are trying. But with this project, we wanted to bring readers right into the classroom to see up close the innovative things that CMSD teachers have to do to overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of learning for some of their students. And Eric Gordon, the CEO of CMSD, was completely on board with this plan. In fact, I think he might have been the one suggested to you that we attempt a project in the spirit of a greater Cleveland that was set in a classroom. And for him, it was really about dispelling what he says are the myths that people in the suburbs have about educating kids in urban settings. He wants the world to see that these are wonderful kids with dedicated families who just face some unimaginable challenges and that the CMSD staff is so committed to marshalling all the resources at their disposal to remove those barriers for them. So we chose Hannah Drown and Cameron Fields for this work uh, as our as our reporting staff. And these two stood out to us because they are, apart from being great reporters, among the most decent human beings in our newsroom. And that's really what this kind of classroom immersion project with fourth graders requires, patience, kindness, and, and that kind of warmth that could just melt an icicle. And that's these two. In, in no time, the students in Miss Smith's classroom had embraced Hannah and Cameron as part of their Elmira Elementary School family. And frankly, you know, so had the entire school support staff. So they have been in that school since November daily experiencing uh, the, the lives of these kids and um, and just getting to know, uh, you know, what it is, what it means to be a student at this school, and and how the the, the faculty responds to uh, to all of their needs. 
Well, I haven't said this before, but I do believe the only reason we're able to do this project is because of the work you did on A Greater Cleveland. Well, we didn't have a large education quotient in A Greater Cleveland. We had some. One of the most moving stories was one where you were watching some kids try to read who Mm -hmm. who were way behind on reading. I'll never forget that story. But we did try to get into the schools a bit, and we didn't get a welcome there. And I think it's because there was no proof of concept. Generally, school districts don't let reporters come in unfettered, have access. But because we lived up to our word in a greater Cleveland of do no harm, Mm -hmm. and you know, we did not write about stories where we thought it might harm one of the participants. We didn't think they should be penalized with public scorn because they were opening their doors to us. When I called Eric to say, look, we want to cover education differently. We want to get at the children and the adults. And and you've put a lot of thought into this. You're one of the, the educational leaders in the country. If you had the ability to do this, what would you do? He didn't bat an eye. He said, I would do a greater Cleveland in the schools. Took mm. me aback. It's like, okay, well, that means you got to let us in the schools. He goes, you got it. You got, I thought it was going to be a long, drawn-out process with lawyers. And he's like, no, no, rolling out the red carpet. I know how, I know what we're doing. I know how special our kids are. I have no doubt that if you spend time in that classroom, you're going to get incredible stories of the work being done. And they did. I mean, they've lived up to it. There was there no limits, no restrictions. We live up to our word. But we wouldn't have been able to do it were it not for the incredible work you did in a greater Cleveland to set the stage. This oh, I is, so appreciate that. You know, this is the evolution. I, mean, I think this takes a greater Cleveland to a deeper depth. And I'm I'm just charmed beyond belief. You wrote a great introductory piece laying out what's in it, but we wanted the first week of stories to really demonstrate for people, this is not your suburban school district, that there are special, difficult challenges involving in poverty. So the first day story did just that. I mean, you cannot read that first day story and say, oh yeah, that's what happened in my school. What was it about? Well, a lot of the backstories uh, f- for these students involve quite a bit of trauma, and that's part of what the school must help manage as a barrier to education. And so in our first installment that ran yesterday, Hannah wrote about two sisters, Sophia and Bailey, one of whom is in Miss Smith's fourth grade class. They're getting ready for school on a typical day when all of a sudden a SWAT team is pounding at their door. And they had come to arrest what turned out to be both of their parents. And after watching this scene where police haul away their parents, these girls go to school and they're just, they walk themselves to school. Actually, for a while, they're running to school until, you know, they, they realize that they're just kind of alone out in the world. And once they get there, Elmira Elementary School is ready to spring into action with all of the support structure that they need from counseling support to someone who's there to coordinate a housing arrangement. Uh, they get them any anything that they need by way of clothing because they kind of, you know, burst out of the house without, you know, anything but but what was on their back. I mean, it was really it's a it's a really amazing story that shows how those wraparound services are just there at the ready for even even such a traumatic experience as this. In in a single story, 
we showed an incredible challenge, one of the many they face, and then the solutions they use to make those kids feel supported. And that was just day one, and we're going to have hundreds of stories. This week, we'll be dealing with homelessness. Cameron has an essay about what it's like to be a black excel, excellent black student that's going to, I think, be very telling for people. Before the week's out, we'll have a profile on the teacher. This is tremendous stuff. Great storytelling by these two reporters. Uh, and, and I give a lot of credit to your leadership on it. I hope people read it. It'll be coming every day this week, every day next week, and then two days a week for the long-term future because, Layla, they're back in the classroom again, Fifth right? Fifth grade has begun. They're, <laughs> they are back in the classroom. And in fact, the kids that they were following in Miss Smith's class are now in, they're spread out into two fifth grade classes. So we have even more kids to get to know, more teachers who have come on board to this project, who are excited to be a part of it and to show the world what, what it means to be a, an educator in the city of Cleveland. Yeah, I couldn't be more proud or more excited about this project. This is tremendous stuff. Check it out on Cleveland.com and in The Plain Dealer starting Sunday. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How much evidence was there Saturday night in Youngstown that Republicans in Ohio remain beholden to Donald Trump? Lisa, how many Republican candidates for state office showed up? Well, it was certainly a rogues gallery of gerrymanderers that came to this Saturday campaign <laughs> event for J.D. Vance. In attendance, Secretary of State Frank LaRose, Auditor Keith Faber, and then Supreme Court Justices Sharon Kennedy, Patrick Fisher, and Pat DeWine. And we all know where they landed on gerrymandering. Now, Governor Mike DeWine didn't go to the event, but he had a quickie little private meeting on the tarmac at a Youngstown area airport with uh, with President Trump. And then he flew immediately back to Cedarville for a cross-country meet that his three granddaughters are in. But, you know, he did get the Trump endorsement, even though Trump kind of, you know, raked him over the coals during the pandemic. Um, and during this rally, which featured a creepy raised arm salute with the index point, finger pointed, which is really scary, Trump mentioned a New York Times article in which Vance and other Senate candidates were said to be not thrilled with Trump rallies in their states during the campaign. And although Vance didn't say specifically that, you know, he had he was an anti-Trumper and boy, Trump made him work. He actually said during the rally, he said, quote, J.D. is kissing my backside, although he didn't use that word. He wants my support so bad. I'm 18 points up. And he's talking about the 2020 election. So also in attendance, they were speaking were uh, congressional candidates, Max Miller, who is a Trump former Trump aide, J.R. Majewski, who put huge Trump letters in, in the field of his home that Trump saw when he flew over it. And Madison Gisato Gilbert was also a speaker at this rally. I, I got to tell you, I thought it was kind of not good that Supreme Court justices were at the rally. Right. I, I just it did not feel right for this. The, and, and these are the Republican justices who are refusing to sit for our editorial board and who have really they've been in the minority opinion on gerrymandering, really putting party ahead of law. Uh, it's been a it's been a very bad time for the Supreme Court. Pat DeWine, as we said, has been ruling on his father's case nonstop. It makes no sense. It violates the canons of his profession. And there they are at a rally with Donald Trump where. He is pandering to the QAnon people. I mean, is that really the image you want 
for Supreme Court justices, the august body that's supposed to be objective. They're at the rally where they're appealing to lunatics who believe the government is a big pedophile ring and want to overthrow the government and do all sorts of wacky things. That's that's who our Supreme Court justices are. Yeah. And I think they really showed their colors this time. I mean, you know, and again, as we all know, they are going to have party affiliations next to their names on the November ballot for the first time ever. So maybe they're seeing, you know, the advantage of having that affiliation and then hewing to Trump to get those votes. And how about a guy running for the Senate who the former president says is trying to kiss his A hyphen hyphen. I mean, is that the kind of candidate you want representing you in the Senate? Somebody that has to kiss the butt of the former president to get his benediction? Tim Ryan wasted no time in saying just that. Is that what you want? Is that what you want? A butt smoocher? I mean, I I just, the whole thing is warped. Uh, The the QAnon, according to, I think it was a story in The Guardian, even the Trump organizers had not seen this before. They played the theme music that is very much aligned with QAnon, and they raised their hands in a QAnon salute, which is holding up the number one. It, It comes across like almost a Nazi salute. Is this what we've come to in the Youngstown area? It's just, it's frightening. And, you know, Yahoo News in writing about this, you know, this one-fingered salute, uh, they compared it with a 19, like, 38 picture of, an, of a Hitler rally, you know? Yeah. And it was pretty scary how similar it was. Yeah. Well, and let's face it, a lot of these supporters are very much into white supremacy. The whole thing is bizarre. But then the Supreme Court justices being there, I, I just, it's, it's, Imagery you just didn't think you would see in your lifetime, that you didn't think we would revert this far back to this kind of authoritarianism. It's very frightening stuff. We'll have to see what happens with that Senate race. Tim Ryan is is really working it hard and polls, which you cannot believe, show him neck and neck. It's today in Ohio. One of the Republicans loyal to Trump in Ohio is running against Marcy Kaptur for Congress, seeking to prevent her from becoming the longest serving woman in the history of either congressional chamber. Laura, who is he and what are the chances of Kaptur keeping that seat? So Lisa just mentioned him, but it's J.R. Majewski. He's a Port Clinton nuclear industry veteran. And so He's challenging her, and this is a different district than she's had to deal with in the past. So remember, it used to include Cuyahoga County. It was called the snake on the lake. Now it kind of looks like a snake, but maybe a fat snake. So it actually goes all the way to the western Ohio border, still along Lake Erie. And Captor's following her traditional campaign playbook. She's standing on her record nearly 40 years of congressional tenure. She wrote legislation that established the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C. She secured money for dredging harbors in Lake Erie, investing in the steel industry and shipbuilding in Lake Erie. Um, She wanted to construct U.S. Army tanks in Lima when some of that, uh, some people wanted to cancel that. And she's met with countless voters at parades, county fairs, fish fries, but this is a region that favored Trump's reelection by a three-point margin. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. We're talking about Erie, Sandusky, Ottawa, Wood, Lucas, Fulton, Williams, and Defiance County. Either all are part of that. 
So Majewski did get a lot of attention when he painted his lawn as a giant Trump campaign sign. He attended the January 6th Trump rally in Washington, D.C., although he was never arrested or charged with anything. And he says, I think, that he was escorting some senior citizens to the Capitol. But he... um yeah, he's he's basically a Trump guy. I mean, he's even wearing polo shirts that are red, white, and blue that say Trump it's on them. Interesting strategy. I don't know that Trump carries that same kind of weight with the middle of the road voters. I mean, the election is now about who do the centrist voters go with, and they traditionally don't go for the Trump. And I think what's happened since the last time they voted for Trump, January sixth, and all of the investigations may hurt him, but it'll be interesting to see if Marcy Kaptur keeps that seat. She's kept it for so, so long. So long. And she's not on this list of the 10 most likely Congress members to lose her seat. And she's raised close to $1.8 million for a reelection bid. She had $1.7 million in her account at the end of June. In comparison, Majewski had collected about 457000 and had 113000 in the bank. So she definitely outraised him can and can advertise more than him. And you're right. I don't think of that section of Ohio as completely like nutty um i mean we've got the guy from sandusky running um it must be just south of there right who was in the supreme court case over a gay marriage so i mean it there are some some purple areas you're listening to today in ohio Although the new state report cards for school districts did not include an all-out ranking, it did have a point system for something called the performance index, something my wife made sure that I saw. What is that index, Layla, and which school districts topped it for the state? Well, the performance index represents whether student performance on state tests met established thresholds and how well students performed on tests overall. This is based on state tests for third grade through high school. So with that as the barometer, students in Solon, which is where your wife works. Absolutely. (laughs) And Rocky River, which is where Laura's kids go to school, (laughs) tested better than any other public school district in the state. Uh, Solon had the top score of 110.1, followed by River at 108. Chagrin Falls tied for third statewide with Hamilton's County Marymount District at 107.9. More than 95% of districts increased their performance index score from the year before, so that's good news. The biggest increases were in Painesville, which went from 32.5 to 65.1. Athens went from 54.9 to 81.9. And then Bedford went from 42.1 to 62.7, which is great. East Cleveland had the lowest in the state. Their score was 43.3, but that was up from 38.3 the year before. So, you know, while testing isn't the only way to measure a student or their school success, it's it's one of the standardized ways to show how they're doing. And it's it's easy to compare and people love to compare, right? So Yeah, I, what, what I do think is unfair about this, and it gets back to the story we talked about at the top of the podcast, is that they don't factor poverty into this. It's probably nine years ago now that Alex Johnson, the, the former Tri-C president, and other educators came over to meet with the editorial board to show how school districts would rate if you included poverty as a factor. Because as we're going to show in Cleveland's Promise, 
poverty creates enormous challenges that the districts that deal with it have to overcome. And I think if you factored poverty into this, districts like Cleveland would come across very strongly because they're doing so much to deal with it. And the districts like Solon that really don't have it would, would not have that, would have that factor bring them down to to size a little bit. I mean, let's face it. It's a lot easier to educate children in Solon than it is in Cleveland because they don't deal with all the things that Cleveland's promise is going to explore. Yes. And I think Eric Gordon would completely agree with what you just said. Well, they, they quantified it. I mean, I, it was fascinating. They did it, but then it never, we never saw it again. Go ahead, Laura. I just wanted to say Rocky River didn't have one of the five per- or four perfect five scores, which we talked about last week, right? And and all of those things like graduation and and gap and early literacy. And so I think you got to look at both of those things. And I have, you know, my kids brought home, or I guess they got mailed, right? The score on their, their tests from the spring and the state, the school average is like, crazy high. You're like, how is that the average? Because it's way, way above the state. And you realize, you know, they've said this for a long time, that SAT scores have a lot more to do with where you live than how smart you are, right? Or how prepared you are for college. And I I think it's just really eye-opening that some, you know, some districts, it's just, it's not fair. Kids do not get an equal education. Well, for marital peace, I do want to say that Solon did have the complete five stars. Just, just, just putting that out there. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and I love Rocky River Schools. I mean, I am a huge supporter of the schools. I've been so impressed with what my kids have been able to learn. But what you're talking about is just, you know, these are the realities, and and not every education is equal because of. Of all of the and let me just say, go Bay Rockets. All the pride you're li- here. <laughs> you're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is Ohio joining with other Midwestern states to build a market for hydrogen? What is it about hydrogen that has the states thinking of it as a solution to greenhouse gas issues? Lisa, I ask this because hydrogen is known for being an explosive gas. And so if you start creating a whole lot of markets for it, don't you kind of create some extra dangers? Yeah, but they've been talking about hydrogen for years, actually, as a way to power cars. And so there is a future, even though it is explosive, there is a future for it. And I will say that Ohio is already producing 161,000 metric tons per year of hydrogen. It's uh, mostly used, they have a market for it here. It's mostly used for uh, petrochemical and fertilizer industries here in the Buckeye State. But uh, Ohio is joining a coalition of seven states called the Midwestern Hydrogen Coalition. They want to establish a market for hydrogen. So Ohio is joining with Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. They're going to work with universities and nonprofits and commercial partners. They want to assess the challenges. As you said, it's an explosive element. And they want to look at the opportunities and then develop solutions so hydrogen can be mainstreamed. It's a voluntary non-binding agreement. The state can leave at any time. They can join other issues, but they're looking at hydrogen. Like I said, they're looking at for future uses in in cars and transportation, producing heavy electricity and using, you know, powering heavy industries. You can also make fertilizer with it when you combine it with uh, carbon dioxide industrial waste. So that's another you're taking you know, a pollutant and a waste and turning it into something good. And a study from Cleveland State University says that, you know, there's already a market here. Um, DeWine's uh, 
spokesman Dan Tierney said it's too soon to say if the state money will be used for this coalition. I guess it might be too early to answer this question too, but does does the state envision pipelines that are carrying this explosive gas to factories to power them and things like that? Uh, I did not see that, but you know, yeah, I don't know how you transport hydrogen. I assume it would be pipeline just like we do with natural gas, but unknown at this point. Okay. It's today in Ohio. I'm going to skip ahead. We just talked last week about two more East Cleveland police officers getting charged in a bribery scheme. And then on Friday, charges came down on two other officers for stealing for people they pulled over. Layla, what are the details of the case? And is there any police department in America with a greater percentage of its officers (laughs) under indictment? I know you can't answer that, but I'll bet the answer is not. That's a pretty good guess. A grand jury charged Alfonso Cole and Willie Warner Sims with four counts each of aggravated robbery as well as theft in office that, you know, and accusations that that they stole more than $14,000 in cash, two guns, and they're suspected and suspected marijuana from five people during traffic stops between July 2020 and July 2021. The aggravated robbery charge stems from the fact that they used their service weapons in the commission of the crime. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just banging my head on the mic here if you hear that sound. it's So So Cole is also charged with grand theft and tampering with records. Prosecutors said that uh, Warner Sims stole from the same man twice. He stole $1,300 that he found during a November 8th, 2020 traffic stop. Then July 8th, 2021, he pulled over the same man he stole from in November and pocketed 781 of the man's money in marijuana edibles. Later that same day, Colin Sims stopped a man who said he was on his way to a funeral home to pay for his mother's services when the officers pocketed $4,000 of the man's cash. I, I, I know. It's, it's just, It's horrendous. It's unconscionable. I mean, they're using their badges to pull people over and steal from them. And this is a department that's completely out of control. We've already chronicled its wild, crazy chases. Its chief is under indictment from stealing. Officer after officer has been charged. Yeah. It, seven of the 45-member police department are facing felony charges right now, including the chief. As you said, he's indicted on aggravated theft, theft in office, and a bunch of tax related offenses accusing him of failing to pay taxes for several years. It's a mess. Why is there no talk at the state level of decertifying them as a police department? You have to be certified as a department by the state to operate as one. We know that because Metro Health had lost its certification for a while. And when we did stories on it a few years ago, there was like, oh, oh, we don't, our police department's not valid. And they got it back. But you would think that having such a high percentage of officers being dirty would would take away their ability to be a police department and you'd have the sheriff's department take responsibility. You, you can't have people with badges abusing the citizenry. And, and the thing is you don't want to get pulled over by them because they're going to steal from you. So people run away, which results in these, these oh, dangerous yeah. and high speed mm-hmm. chases, but they have a legitimate reason to run away because the cops are thugs who want to steal from them. Oh, and the whole thing point. is a, nightmare and and nobody steps in to fix it we've talked about this over and over the people in east cleveland are not being served by their public officials they pay their taxes but they're not getting services who fixes it it's just a disaster it's today in ohio 
How is the director of the Cleveland Museum of Art pivoting the museum's mission in year eight of his 10-year contract? Lisa, this is a very interesting story by Steve Litt. The director is being very contemplative about what the future should be. Yeah, William Griswold has been the director of CMA since 2014, and he released a new strategic plan to make the museum more approachable and more accessible and more representative. This initiative is called For the Benefit of the People, and it will be revealed in detail later this week. But a big part of it is adding to and diversifying their already major collection. They want to include some like ignored pieces of art, including uh, digital art. They want to have a more immersive exhibit exhibits with digital art. Think Van Gogh, immersive Van Gogh, but not quite that flashy. Um, Also, they want to have more Judaica, more art from colonial Latin America, indigenous art from the USA, Africa, and South Asia. And they also want to expand school visits. And, uh, you know, they want to train frontline staff have them wear more casual uniforms so they're more approachable, and this includes security guards. So yeah, they they really want to get more people into the museum and say, look, this isn't just a dusty old, you know, relic place. This is a place for everybody to learn and and see, you know, art representative of their community. You love when people do the introspection and question the way they've always done things to come up with new ways. It's exactly what we're doing with Cleveland's Promise. We've covered education the same way for decades, writing about the teachers and the union squabbles, and now we're doing a project that's about the kids and the teachers. He's doing the same kind of thing. He's looking what they've always done and saying, why, why do we do that? Let's change. And it's refreshing as hell. Yeah, he's setting some benchmarks, too, to be met by 2027, and one of them is to increase student visits, which are about 37500 a year, to 100000 a year, and they want to increase their yearly visits from visitors, you know, on-site visitors, to $1 million by 2027, and also uh, their website and online visits. They want, it's about $5 million per year now. They want to up that to $25 million a year, so they really want to get, you know, everybody into the museum, whether they come in person or go online. Yeah, it's a Cleveland treasure. I love going there. It's today in Ohio. Let's do one more. Laura, who are the winners of this year's Cleveland Arts Prize? So this happens, obviously, every year, and big winners this year, the 62nd annual, uh, and the awards will given out on, will be given out on November 2nd. The 2022 Lifetime Achievement Award goes to Gladisa Guadalupe. She has a long career in dance. She was the director and principal teacher at the Cleveland Ballet School, and then she founded it, actually. And in 2014, they established the Cleveland Ballet, which is the resident company. The mid-career artist goes to Dominic Farinacci and Deborah Nagy. Farinacci is the director of the Tri-C Jazz Fest Academy. Nagy is best known for her work as a curator, producer, and performance with Les Delice, which is a Cleveland-based ensemble she founded. There's an emergency, Emerging Artist Award to Peter Debelak and Amber D. Kempthorne. And then the 2022 Robert P. Bergman Prize for a Lifetime of Work is focused on the democratic vision of art, and that goes to Julie Patton. She's an award-winning arts educator. She worked with all sorts of Cleveland philanthropists and community leaders over the years to basically augment the city's art scene. And then there is the Martha Joseph Prize that honors an individual organization that's made a significant contribution that goes to Sajatha Sir, Sir Vasan. She's a choreographer and teacher in the classic Indian art of 
I'm going to mess this one up, Bara Ten Tenayam Dance, and she founded a center for Indian performance arts in Cleveland. So hats off to all of these people who are doing phenomenal. I'm really work excited in the about Dominic Farinacci. I remember when Wynton Marsalis, one of my favorite all-time jazz artists, kind of recognized him and brought him, took him under his wing, actually brought him on the stage a few times, gave his career a big boost, and it's he's mid-career already, and he's become this national star. Great to see him getting recognized. It's Today in Ohio. That does it for a Tuesday discussion. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. We'll be back Wednesday for another discussion of the news. Music.